0: And welcome to episode fifty-four of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel.
1: I'm Eloise Ross.
0: And I'm Anders Firth. And in this episode, we'll be sharing the Cultural Capital Film Diary and counting down our top three films about fame. But first, the film that's inspiring that list: Bradley Cooper's Lady Gaga-starring remake of A Star Is Born.
1: Can I ask you a personal question? Do you write songs or anything?
2: I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Well, because, like, almost every single person that I've come in contact with in the music industry has told me that my nose is too big and that I won't make it.
3: Your nose is beautiful. Are you showing me your nose right now? Yeah. You don't have to show it to me. I've been looking at it all night. Oh, come on. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about your nose for a very long time. You're full of shit. I'm not full of shit.
1: I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. You're full of shit. Can I touch your nose?
2: Oh, my gosh. Let me just touch (laughs) it for a second. Oh, Oh, I feel like I'm dying.
1: An age-old story direct from Tinseltown, A Star is Born has become entwined as a metonym for the dangers of Hollywood and all of its very American glories. The original story stemmed from a number of real actors and relationships in the silent film days and from George Cukor's What Price Hollywood in 1932, starring Constance Bennett. Since then, four stellar presences have performed the role in 1937, 1954, 1976 and now 2018, In the latest, Lady Gaga is Ali, an amateur singer essentially discovered by established Bruce Springsteen-type rock star Jackson Maine, Bradley Cooper, who then helps to launch her into a solo career. This version, also directed by Cooper, is full of energy and rich with exploration of both creative relationships and the American dream, while also updating some of the story's intricacies to penetrate real life, where the earlier manifestations were often grounded purely in mythology. Anders... What do you think of this version?
3: Mm. Uh, I think it's a really interesting film and worth seeing because it does offer quite a lot to discuss, as we will. As you mentioned, it is such an archetypal story and I found it really interesting to see these beats sort of dressed up in... 2018 detailing um, or contemporary detailing. So, I mean, it's the same old story of, um, you know, well, as uh, he says, as Jackson Mayen says in the film, there's what, 12 notes or something, and everyone plays them differently. So, that was like a very sort of meta. self-reflexive, I guess, comment on the fact that this does play them differently. So you have these moments like when she's crowned as a a sort of, when her moment arrives, it's sort of crowned by the SNL performance um, featuring a cameo from Alec Baldwin um, to, you know, her adoring dad watching this YouTube clip that sort of goes viral of her first performance. Um, So all of that stuff I found really, really interesting. I thought Cooper I've never really been struck by Bradley Cooper as an actor, but I really was. I mean, it's clear that this was a huge labour of love for him as both a director and actor. And this character really stuck, has resonated with me, perhaps even more than the character played by Gaga, which was not really what I was going into the film expecting, but I've definitely hit from his voice, his gravelly voice, to he has a particularly uncomplicated worldview that's nevertheless quite sincere and emotionally resonant. I don't know if that quite makes sense, but he's, he's a fascinating character. I mean, he's almost childlike in a way, in terms of his emotional responses to things. And I, I just, I'm still sort of working through that Um, And I I don't know, I just found that side really, really fascinating that that was what I clung to um, more than the story of the star being born, despite the fact that that uh, obviously was compelling and interesting for different reasons. What did you think, Andy? Uh, I
0: thought there were some really great set pieces here that I really loved. Um, I love the dynamic between Cooper and Gargo and like you, I've been waiting for Cooper to actually mean something to me, mm. but every time he's turned up in anything, apart from Place Beyond the Pines, which I thought he was quite good in, he's never—he's just never really connected. I don't know why, because he's been around for ages. It's strange. He's got a really strange trajectory. Um, but he is an unusual presence he's a great director I thought some really fantastically put together scenes yeah ultimately I guess since I just in the previous 24 hours I watched the 1937 and 1954 versions I was kind of waiting for those beats to happen but it's not it's like more of a remake for the the 70s version right
1: no, not at all.
0: Not at all? Okay, well, I read that it was the more of a inspired by that one because I was waiting for a lot of the beats to happen that happened in both those f- earlier versions that never came.
1: Well, I mean, what do you mean by beats?
0: Well, there were certain scenes and th- that were like, were like the dialogue that was taken dr- directly and f- used in both films. So there's certain scenes in which there's a phone call that's being overheard yep. that's very important. There's yep. um, earlier scenes of where there's a, a rushed marriage that has repeated dialogue. That's
1: true. Some of, I mean, some of that's true, but there are also direct connections to, um, if not the 37 version, then of course the 54 version. So, uh, in that sense, I don't think that it it has any more connection to the 76 version apart from the fact that again, it's like said in the music industry, whereas the first two were primarily in Hollywood kind of thing. Mm. Um, the 76 version is kind of dismal because I watched it again recently, and it actually. I mean the energy in Cooper's version is so so intense for and I really love that the film is kind of in two halves and I've heard some people comment on the fact that the first hour is incredible and rich and then it kind of he loses momentum in the second half and I don't necessarily think that's true or fair really because what I think Cooper does is intentionally kind of shifts the gears in the second half because the first half is about them falling in love and so it's about us as an audience kind of being drawn into their energy together. And then in the second half it's about the struggles and something else. But in the 76 version, it takes about an hour for anything to happen at all. (laughs) It's really, really, really slow um, and kind of... Yeah, just does doesn't really do anything at all. Although I did see, you know, the Joan Diddy and John oh. John Gregory Dunn. I think their script was credited first yeah, and it was. then it goes back and credits the um Wellman version. Um and so y- yeah, w- whether or not that's that's true, but I can see connections with the fifty four version, I think, that are just as rich.
0: Really, right. So you you really like this version?
1: The twenty eighteen version. Yeah. I do. I think it's I, I was a little pissed off when it was announced. <laughs> um, I just feel like people, I mean, probably like a lot of people, feel very protective of this story, um, like, you know, protective of um, Janet Gaynor and Judy Garland, um, Streisand, maybe here or there, um, but of this story itself and of its retelling and of its connection to Hollywood and of its kind of intense emotional presence and just what it achieves. Um, And so I was kind of really unsure about how it would go with it, but I, and there was actually a moment at the very beginning of the film where I thought, oh, this is going to be as bad as I thought, which is when um, he's in the car and they're driving around looking for... Uh, you know, A bar or whatever um, And the camera is framing Bradley Cooper And he's on the right and then they kind of Turn a corner and out the window Is that big rainbow yes. yeah, was, With, the nooses. Yes, yes. with <laughs> the nooses on it And I don't even, I saw the film a second time Last night and I still don't even know how those nooses Are there or what it is advertising um, But from that I thought Oh my god this is Signposting this way too earlier how On the nose and how like clunky This is going to be a terrible film but but luckily, nothing like that happened again. Had
0: you been following its development hell? Like, the you know, Clint Eastwood was going to direct it. There were all these different names that were, had turned it down, like DiCaprio and Cruz and, and, and Christian Bale. <laughs> I vague, vaguely, know, knew, Beyonce.
1: vaguely <laughs> knew about all of those things, but I hadn't really, you know, paid much attention because, I mean, like how this story is so entwined with Hollywood, I feel like the idea of remaking it is just constant. And yeah. so why pay attention to it kind of if we don't really have to? But the <laughs> But what I... What I loved is that this film still has... ...you know, the melodramatic extremes of the characters... ...but it also gives them some more kind of subtlety and clarity... Yes, ...and it still has melodrama of like, you know... ...editing um, and like particular moments... ...a few particular kind of framing things... ...are are, are very, um, I guess, you know... ...kind of soaked in that melodramatic origin... ...but it also updates it and at times... The way that Bradley Cooper directs the the scenes, and the way that some of them are kind of just fragments of moments mm. rather than mm. entire you know scenes or explorations, is kind of just like I don't know an indie drama yeah. <laughs> or something yeah. really bizarre, yeah, yeah. right? That sort like
3: naturalistic yeah. kind of acting kind style, of, and, and the way and
1: that the music is kind of felt, and the yeah. way that they kind of move around the screen and the camera. I mean, the camera will often and this became very obvious to me the second time watching it, but we'll all he'll. He's obviously got that thing where he'll follow a character, and it's a tracking shot from behind them, and that, that he's realised that that's a really powerful shot, which it is. And I feel like maybe it's a little overdone in this film, but he'll the way he kind of frames characters at times, I was kind of reminded of I don't know American Honey or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah, well, I think one of my favourite scenes I think was Le'Veon Rose in the bar toward the beginning because that that's sh- sh- like keeping you in the audience and mm-hmm. then following Lady Gaga around. Beautiful, love yeah. that.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I really enjoyed that scene. I mean. Gaga is kind of the perfect person in America right now to play this character. Um, someone who is not only has been spoken about and kind of framed in the media and in fandom as, you know, someone who's ugly, someone who is um, fake, someone mm. who, um, you know, there's there was that story that existed for a while that maybe she was actually, a, you know, that she's um, a trans woman. And that you know, and it was framed in a way that kind of discussion or rumor about her was framed in a way to kind of put her down. I thought when that happened. Really? Oh, Um, yeah. And then she played it up, and you know, Gaga actually appeared on a on a um, magazine cover as her male alter ego. In that, do you remember that? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And so she did kind of play into it, and I think that that, and also she's someone who is her image is so. Um, hidden. I mean, her image is basically she wears a mask, she wears a wig, she wears, like, clothing. A suit out of meat. meat. Hide, yeah, that cl- hides who she is. And so there are just, l- like, a, a real... Um, there's a real richness of reasons why she's a perfect character. But I love that they put her in the drag bar and that she was a, a you know, that she was a woman um, who was singing um, amongst all of these drag queens who were, you know, wonderful. And shout out to Willem from Drag Race season, um, <laughs> I don't know, four or something. Yeah. <laughs> I like seeing her again. But um, that, you know, that I find really interesting, that she kind of embraced this history yes. that was used to put her in a particular... Kind of, um, you know, narrow framework, and she's said, "Well, hey, I'm Gargs now."
3: Well, that's and that is really interesting. And um, what I I found interesting about was the film's uh, perspective on that uh, authenticity or lack thereof, because I don't think that it actually. I mean, so there are scenes where Bradley Cooper's character sort of. He sort of derides her when she becomes sort of successful and she becomes more sort of produced and, um, you know, she starts wearing out, you know, slightly crazier outfits. Nothing too extreme for those of us who uh, know uh, Gaga's, uh, you know, personas. But yet I felt like that was more a reflection of his character and not the film's yeah, I didn't feel like the film was embodying that perspective at all. I was having a hard
1: time figuring that out. And because Cooper is the director and the main actor, yes. there is some kind of confusion about what his character is saying because his character is so, um, you know, defined already by the story and then what Cooper himself is doing. And there is a confusion of that. And there's always going to be, you know, in any project where someone is playing more than two roles. Mm. Um, I mean, crew and cast and so I find that really interesting but I didn't know whether it was in fact some kind of criticism of gaga's persona because that song that she sings on SNL I mean I kind of love it and it's kind of the stupid same. but it's the it's the kind of song that gags would actually perform and yeah, release exactly and it's meant to suggest that she's somehow maybe compromised her artistic integrity but You know, the character of Ali, but then I feel like is it then criticising Garg's and who she really is as a pop star? And so there's that, like they're entwined, Ali and Gaga are entwined and Cooper and Jackson are entwined and that is quite confusing.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's resolved entirely, which is an interesting tension in the film.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I found
0: it that interesting, to be honest. I'm, I was really disappointed with the way that the narrative assumed that piano ballads are okay for when you're starting out and then as soon as you become famous you need to have backing dancers and make fairly forgettable electro-pop. I'm honest, I, honestly, I like a lot of her songs and she's obviously extraordinarily talented but I'm mystified as to why they decided to use these sorts of things unless it's, like you were saying, from a Cooper perspective of modern pop is a bit crap and isn't my authentic yes, southern yeah. rock. F- I don't know if bad. the
1: narrative was assuming that. But or if it was used as a device for us to think that Cooper yeah, was being unfair it's to interesting, her. Interesting,
3: isn't it? Yeah,
1: I. Well, not Cooper Jackson. See, I'm doing it with Cooper. <laughs> all, right? Yeah. Anyway, you know, you're right, Anders. It wasn't revol- resolved, and so much of the reason that I love this film, and so much of the reason why the first half is so energetic and so full and so involving and um, just so wonderful, basically, is that it's filled with Jackson and Cooper, I would say, at this point, having love and respect and, like, being filled with wonderment for Ali slash Gaga and just her talent. Like, you can see it in his reactions. You can see it in the way that the camera frames her and lets her sing. Um, And you can see it in the time that the camera spends between the two of them. And that's really wonderful. And then at the end, I feel like there was a little complication where it's hard to say because Cooper was the director and he didn't want to, although he is obviously the, you know, the quote unquote bad guy in the film who manipulates her and then leaves her and deserts her and can't deal with, you know, he's jealous. The Cooper couldn't quite go that whole way. And so he had to, at some point, like martyr himself. And so that speech that comes from the brother, or not the brother, sorry, the, you know, the bad guy, the manager, manager, Rez. the corporate guy. Um frames him as the bad guy in that point, and then the the time spent on his suicide um, kind of suggests that it's his struggle, which it is because it's about his it's about addiction as well, and that's what this film does really well in updating it. it doesn't say that you can just walk into the ocean and die and that everything's beautiful, but that it is actually, Kind of dealing with these problems um, and and speaking them in a really quite um, important way, I think. But I do yeah. sense that it kind of forgets about Gaga. Yeah. In that shift, that I really didn't like, and the the proof of that, I think, is in that final song where she's singing, and it's so incredible, and it's like held for. I, I don't know how long she sings for, but then at that crucial moment at the end, it cuts back from her powerful voice alone to the two of them kind of singing the song because, or to him singing the song, and she's at the piano as well. And that moment for me was so disrespectful because it was her song and it was her moment. And there'd been the montage of the two of them together, which was really powerful. You know, we didn't need to kind of have A, her image and B, her voice kind of cut away from in that moment. Mm. It was almost like Bradley Cooper was saying, you know, remember me? I was such a nice guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought the emotional point was because that was the first time she heard the song. So she was like, there was a a circle.
1: So she was remembering it rather than him. Yes. Possibly. But, um, uh, yeah,
3: you're right. It, it, it did undercut the emotion of that moment. I
1: mean, in the first two.
3: Baphos. It was a pathetic yeah. moment.
1: <laughs> in the first two, there is no song. It simply announces them on stage and they, mm. they say, I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. Thank you. And then it cuts, you know, before their performance. And in the Streisand one, it's like a seven minute take of her singing two songs. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And then it finishes on her face, you know, so it's very much about Streisand in that moment, which is totally okay as well. Um, You know, she had influence, obviously John Peters was the producer. So in, but in this, yeah, I just felt like this one stood out very, very much as something that shifted that moment away from the woman.
0: Yeah. Okay. Right. I got, had pretty much the opposite take on yeah. it. Really. I, the music, the song, wasn't really wasn't connecting with me at all. Yeah. And the fact that they did that montage of clips you've just been watching earlier in this movie, which <laughs> has been already going for <laughs> over you know two and two and a half hours. Or something. Yeah. yeah. Then to have that little connection at the moment because th- that was my favorite part was them c- them connecting like their conversations, mm-hmm, yeah, the okay. way that they were reading each other, particularly the earlier scenes in the parking lot, and then as the you know the dynamic starts shifting. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like the fact that it, the very final thing you see is her face, her looking back into the yeah. camera.
1: That that's okay. That yeah, that that like, that's like that's like
0: yep, making sure you know what this is about. It's about this
1: woman. That's true, and then it cuts to black, and it says "A Star Is Born," and then the first credit is Lady Gaga. Like that's pretty excellent. You're right.
3: And I mean, is I mean, this is it's such an interesting, ambivalent uh, approach to fame and the star. I mean, is it saying, "Well, here she is; she's the star that's born from this." I mean, the tragedy of the film is that. She she becomes super She becomes a star Just at this Horrendous moment I don't know I'm still trying to reconcile The emotional Arc of the film I don't know Yeah in a way I yeah. thought it was
0: interesting Because it took me back To the very first one Which was much more Fairy tale like mm. Like at no point In the 1937 version Does anyone work Besides the press agent, Libby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything happens off stage. She's not interested in becoming an actress. She's interested in becoming famous and accepted. The
1: fifty-four one too hardly. You see her come home from work, but you don't. And that's I had noted that down because you don't see any artistic progress or creative, you know, time spent with them in those two versions. But this one, you really do. But in the
0: fifty-four version, like she's obviously astonishingly talented before things begin. Yeah. Um. And then you know, with the man that got away and all that sort of stuff. These sort of beautiful shots. Um, And so I found it hard because I was watching the iTunes version, which is 176 minutes, and it has these still pan pan and scan shots of photographs. Oh, yeah, that's what mine does. Which heads up to anybody who is about to watch this 54 version, prepare for there just to be photographs on screen for a little while which really threw me out of it but it's still it's an astonishing film and all the scenes that they end up cutting that I was reading about that they cut you know are amazing the musical numbers where george chorus is just going bananas with the art direction and it's gorgeous
1: they didn't cut them the studio studio threw took them, out. them yeah. Yeah. out yeah 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 because yeah,
0: it was running what 181 minutes or something
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why they kind of got back in and there was some you know there was there's a few scenes that are like clearly um footage that has not been you know finished yeah yeah um, so yeah really blurry unrefined stuff um yeah so anyway i do like that version oh, That's astonishing yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it's the best one isn't it
0: yeah, I mean, and, and just for the emotional impact as well. But also, it's like, like I felt my I felt myself checking myself because I was laughing so much at drunk James Mason, yeah. like the way he literally picks Garland up and puts her in places in the beginning, like he's physically manipulating her, which I thought was interesting because in this film, like Gaga is so kinetic. There's so much dancing and movement going on, and that's something that, um, like Jackson Maine doesn't really do very much of. He's like quite you know often if he's not drunk. He's kind of fairly stolid mm. and doesn't move a lot. And the music he's playing is. Yeah,
3: yeah. Shout out to <laughs> Kiwi country musician Marlon, Marlon Williams, Williams who's in, up in this. Yeah. The guy, the younger country guy who sort of replaces him in that oh, Grammy wow. yeah, performance. Yeah, that was, yeah. was nice. Yeah, That was cool.
2: Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that?
1: Gaga is incredible, like not only as a singer and performer, but I actually think that her performance as an actor in this film is is really doing stuff that I haven't seen anyone else do in a really long time. And I don't know whether it's because it's this role in particular and she wouldn't be able to transfer the same um, talent elsewhere. Who knows, really? But in this, I mean, that first scene, this is Gaga, right? Like she's so... Um, ...secure in her performing body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first scene where she goes to one of one of his shows... ...and then he says, come on stage. And she says, no, 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 don't do it. Um, I can't do it. I can't go out in front of all those people. And then she does because she feels the song happening... ...and she says, okay, I have to sing with this man. And so she goes out and that shot where the camera pulls back... and ...and she comes onto the stage is incredible but there are so many moments during that song where her face is expressing terror and horror that she's there and amazement that she's managing to actually sing in front of people and fear that all of this is happening and disbelief and all of those things happening at once and they're so obvious and so incredible on her face, but it's Gaga and so there's nothing about her that would be afraid of, <laughs> of singing yeah. or that would show it that way yeah, on sure. stage yeah, if it yeah. was actually her. And so that in, its, in itself is, you know, one of the greatest kind of scenes of the movie, I think, because it shows what she's going through. Yeah.
0: And you get that again a few like scenes later, where she's like, Oh my God, I'm on a private jet. What? Yeah. yeah. That was right. called, like That oh, was Shane great. Vane's, sorry. Yeah. I think it's a little earlier. A little earlier. Sure. Yeah. 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 But Same you know, yeah.
1: that kind of thing is completely absent from the Streisand version because it's Streisand and she's just waltzing in <laughs> being the greatest. Um, and, you know, she doesn't really actually need anything from the man in that case she just she kind of you know she's in charge of him and i do like that about this as well you know i mean there's talk as well that jackson Maine is an asshole and she says no and you know you know all of that bullshit stuff that the film has a problem with consent i'm like can you just have some like sensitivity and subtlety and um, you know understand the way that people work but that she actually doesn't take crap from him a lot. No. And I really love that. And like that yeah. first bit where he says, I'm not drinking, and she says, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> go wait yeah, downstairs. Yeah, go
3: wait away, go away downstairs. Yeah. yeah. That
0: was in my head a little bit where he was like, oh, my God, he's had a private jet waiting just this whole time for her to turn up with her driver that he sent for her. Yeah, I was getting a bit of Fifty Shades of Grey vibe, but that got, just got dealt with straight away, I thought, as soon as you actually see them together again and having that, that yep. moment on the stage yep. where you're like, whoa. Yeah,
1: The only thing when if we're talking about him doing things without – her permission. The only thing I have a problem with is that he sings her song without asking
0: <laughs> Yeah, and has arranged it already yeah. with the band behind it. <laughs> like her back. that's
1: kind of an asshole move. I don't care yeah. if like he then made her famous. <laughs> um I mean that's a little not cool. I just wanted to mention this as well. So we're talking about like the fifty four version, right? And how Cooper I think is actually very respectful of those earlier versions. He's not he's not coming here and saying mine is the best Yeah. There's that scene where he's drunk and he's being an asshole, and then which um, one? <laughs> the, one of the early ones where they're first, and then he falls on the floor and Garg says, "Oh yeah, they don't worry, he does this all the time." The cake
0: on the face scene. Yeah. Cake on the
1: face, and then they go into the bedroom and he shoves cake on her face, and she's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Anyway, and there's a bit where the camera goes out of focus for like a split second, and then it comes into focus again. And that is one of the most famous that out of focus, in focus, in the man that got away. But it does actually happen a second time. I noticed in that as well.
0: I can't believe that was is, like, no idea that was a thing. Yeah, in the is one of version. the
1: most kind of famous spoken about moments of that oh. film. Cool. And I feel like that had to be a thing. Yeah, that had to be in homage, that bit. And yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't during a performance. It was just kind of seemed as though it was in a random scene um, but I love that so much
3: (laughs) awesome (laughs) you nerd
1: (laughs) I'm a huge nerd I'm very into this film I really really I really like it I also think it's really interesting that Gaga is credited as Lady Gaga so she's keeping even as an actor she's keeping her persona her star persona intact whereas someone like I don't know I was just kind of thinking about Uh, The Rock, who when he started acting went back to Dwayne Johnson and Gaga hasn't done that. interesting point. You know, she's Joanne, but, you know, she's Mm -hmm. still Gargs and I I think that's really great.
3: (laughs) That is cool. Like those uh, shots from the Venice Film Festival, it was like B Cooper, L Gaga, (laughs) like the nameplates.
1: Oh, yes, I (laughs) remember that.
3: (laughs) Um, And, yeah, it does beg the question of, uh, yeah, performance and stuff. There was a really interesting MIT Profile of her recently and she didn't really give much away.
1: I have that open in yeah. my browser right it's now. It's yeah. worth reading. I haven't yeah. read it, but yeah, that she, it's, you know, it says something like, you know, she wants to keep on changing, keep on, you know, play all of her personas out.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to the next good one because this feels like she's being herself, but um, it, it can't just be that.
1: <laughs> I know, she's fooling you. Yeah, I'm fooled. Um, That's how good she is. Mm. Okay, there's... Actually, I can't believe I didn't say this already, but I was too um, carried away with how much I love this film. But I have a really big problem with the fact that her name is Ali and she doesn't have a surname. And not only that, so she doesn't have a surname and that's, you know, from a feminist perspective, that's a huge problem that she's only Ali And, I mean, not the fact that her star name is Ali, but that as a character her name is Ali and they never mention her surname. And the reason why that shits me is because the name is so important to all of the other versions, right? You have Esther Blodgett becomes Vicky Lester and she's Mm. Esther Blodgett and when in the 3754 she's Vicky Lester and she's, like, marketed as Vicky Lester in Hollywood, that's it. I mean, when she's married, she um, takes on her husband's name, but she's never referred to as that. She's always referred to as Vicky Lester until the final scene where she comes on stage and says, I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. Mm. In those first two, in the Streisand one, and this is very tied up with Streisand, I think, and Streisand's persona and keeping her Jewishness rather than bearing it, which is what the first two do. She's Esther Hoffman. And she doesn't change her name. There's a line about changing her name. And she says, no, I think there's a line about okay. it. Anyway, but she cool. she says twice, once a bit earlier on. And then when she says, when she comes on stage at the end, she says, I'm Esther Hoffman Howard. So she's taking his surname, but keeping her own. Mm-hmm. And Ali is only Ali until the final, until scene. final scene. And yeah. she says, I'm Allie Main. Mm. And so I that's so obvious. Mm. And that was... In my opinion, a huge oversight, mistake, not an oversight. I feel like it was done on purpose. Huge mistake. Hmm, Why does she not have a, a maiden name? Anyway, I don't know. Does the dad have a surname?
0: He's just Lorenzo in the credits.
1: Yeah, they none of them. I don't think I any don't of have them have a surname. surname. Anyway. It's interesting. Yeah, because
0: I was actually surprised to Andrew Dice Clay I, uh, uh, because he's got a checkered history Right. that he's kind of back on board and everyone's double thumbs up. It's all good. Yeah, I mean, it has been a long time since he was
3: not—he
0: was a band. He was cancelled. Well, d- is role. he that old, or
3: was he in makeup as an old? I, I feel know, like he's not. I was he's like, oh, what? He's You're good. playing his dad?
0: Yeah, really well cast. I thought he was great.
3: Uh, we haven't even uh, talked about dad, Sam Elliott yet. Oh, he was good. Everybody loves him. He's his, like, voice? Oh, his voice. His <laughs> voice. <laughs> <laughs> Just loved his voice. Uh, and it was quite remarkable how Cooper's voice. I mean, I imagine that they he sounded, sounded the same. Yeah, they sounded like you could yeah. tell they were brothers. Yeah. Yeah. That was quite no, a Cooper man.
0: has spoken at length about how long he trained his voice. It's, his it's quite
1: astounding that, it, that his voice comes out like that, yeah, just consistently, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking, is yeah.
0: there some, there's some sort of like computer effect? Because sometimes it almost <laughs> sounded a bit like Siri was dying, <laughs> because it was just so gravelly, and it was, it was. You could tell there was a bit of chin tilt to lengthen. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. You know, <laughs> it was a bit. Like that. If you're going to sound like anyone, you may as well sound like the dude. <laughs> Mm. He is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I loved Elliot's performance. He kind of just won every scene he was in. I thought.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah
3: sort of the wise and American man who he spits out wisdom and, and takes and a punch on the chin. Yeah, and takes exactly yeah. exactly.
0: And as soon as his brother expresses emotion to him, he dri- literally drives away. Yeah, that's reverses right. out that's of right.
1: the scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh, hmm. So, do you guys want to um, know something really cool? Please. Please. That's why we light on us. Well, I'm basically only saying this so I get a chance to talk about Barbara Stanwyck. But this story is based (laughs) on Barbara Stanwyck.
0: Yes, I was reading this and I thought, no no, I'm going to bet ten bucks. Ella's going (laughs) to mention this at some point. Um, (laughs) I have no idea.
1: Kind of a composite, but yeah, Barbara Stanwyck and her first husband Frank Fay, who um, they came. He was a very successful, very talented Vaudeville star um who then like when they came to hollywood she had been on broadway and actually done quite well but he stopped her working and then he said okay you can work again but he was drunk and he beat her and um it was kind of publicly known and so that i mean that's one of them there was also um you know i mean there are a couple of like really drunk people who who um you know that character was based on i think as well like john barrymore Um,
0: Yeah, he was inspiration for the
1: 37
0: version, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Um, I'm a little confused as to where what Price Hollywood comes into this picture.
1: Well, what Price Hollywood was... um,
0: George George Kukor, 1932.
1: Yeah, yeah, George Kukor. So it's really interesting, like Selznick produced it and he um, really wanted to... It's really interesting that he really wanted... He's outspoken about making an epic of Hollywood that told the truth about how dirty and disgusting it was and how it was, f- like, filled with basically pitting people against each other. Um, and there were a couple of kind of... I think there was the Colleen Moore was maybe one of the inspirations for that first one. Mm. Um, but there were a couple of... Like, it was basically based on a couple of real stories in the 20s. Right, okay. Um, and then... It's not a direct adaptation, but um, I think they did want QCOR to direct the 37 version, and he said, no, maybe. Hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: It sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I loved about the 2018 version was the role family played, because you get family at the very beginning of the 37 version where the grandma says, this is the money I've been saving for my funeral. I'll give it to you, and you can go to Hollywood, and the fairy tale begins. And then she... Turns out I think right at the very end again. Yeah. It's like bookending the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and then we don't get much of a background for Garland's character. Yeah. But then here it's crucial. Like the, I yeah. love the dynamic between the dad and the three friends Me who are too. like taking a piss out of each other and then you get the whole background for um, Jackson Maine's character about his personal trauma. And also up.
3: he's, you know, he's a supportive father and yet he also puts a lot of pressure on her as well and it's just so economically... Presented that dynamic Like in just that one Yeah sort of it is it's, I know That yeah,
1: question yeah. He says Are you happy honey And she says Yes I'm happy When clearly she's Just kind of Living by rote
0: mm. um, yeah. Anyway She's like a mother And a daughter And working Yeah, <laughs> and
3: doing this, it's, yeah. I, it's There's quite a lot In this film actually When you start talking about it It's yeah I it's, do
1: think that The yeah. family issues That Jackson's family issues Were a little overdone And that they could have been More cleverly Communicated But But I did like Yeah Gaga and her dad
0: Mm. Yeah I think it was really nice Emotional Like balance To be able to bring to it Mm. Yeah
3: Yeah the whole stuff About the dad's ranch When they When they had that confrontation I felt like it sort of Had come from nowhere But you know
0: yeah, 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 same. I think that was the, f- that was the p- first one I realised they were actually brothers. I think I must have missed the part earlier where that No, I
3: came. think that is, it's revealed explicitly, uh, yeah, it takes a while for that yeah, revelation right, yeah, to good. come. I, so yeah, so I was yeah. like, hang
0: on, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> You're right, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a fair few people to get your head around here. I was really hoping for more of the three friends and the dad dynamic, actually. I could have spent a whole afternoon <laughs> off <laughs> off <laughs> them. with them. Spin off with them driving. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the and, the, and then the guy with the cap who turns up and suddenly he's there for when they announce the marriage. He's the driver, I think. Oh, yeah, that
3: guy. The,
0: the African-American friend of Bradley Cooper's, when he turns up at his house and they have the heart-to-heart. Yeah. He's passed out on in, in the street and then he proposes. And,
3: yeah. yeah. He had that great line about... Uh, what we're all ships or something, and sometimes you you dock on your journey, and then you stay there, and you were that you, you realize the journey was going to the dock all along or something like that. I, yeah, I said it in a bad way. Oh, but no, it's, gonna, it's, yeah, right. It's that's, much more eloquent. That's, yeah, that's one of the best lines of the film, I think. Um, yeah, and then of course there's Gaga's friend who pops up as well. There's yeah. quite a few. There are a few characters. He's mm.
1: great. Yeah. I yeah, he was good too. Like Again, she's more <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. That's true. But it was very much about the two of them, yeah, Charlie and Jack, one yeah,
0: word, so. and their dog.
1: And their Charlie. dog. Oh, who is dog. Bradley Cooper's real dog. Yeah, oh, I just learned that. Named Charlie in the credits. It's yeah, credited Charlie. Okay. Cool.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was uh, one of Barbara Strasan's cloned dogs for a second. Oh, my <laughs> God. similar they? spectrum of dog. But, yeah. Cooper, you I missed, know you Cooper. missed a, a golden opportunity Go there. A golden
0: retriever opportunity. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know what they are. <laughs> I'll pay that. I'll pay that. Thank you. Um, okay. okay. I, there was one thing, a question that was uh, running through my head while I was watching this to ask you should this movie have been called A Star is Born? Yes. Because immediately saying that, you bring an awful lot of baggage to the film, which kind of was doing a lot of its own stuff for a lot of the the case.
1: It should have been called A Star is Born in my opinion because it is a story that is not entirely original and has been done in other forms in other movies that are not directly connected to this, whereas this is directly in conversation with the earlier versions Mm. and relies on that. Pre, you know, knowledge that people bring to it That's my opinion Okay, because mm. in a
0: way I was like You're almost killing your last act Because everyone who comes to this is going to know Where this is going to end mm,
1: you know? My friend Julia didn't know Oh, right, Last okay. night, she was pretty sad uh, um, So not yeah. everyone, but, you mm. know But if you do, I don't think there's a problem with that
3: No, um, no I agree um, You know Because it, there's value it, in... Going back to these archetypal stories. I mean, and the other thing is, it does. I mean, it is the. It is what the film is about, and Eve what I find interesting, even when the film's not, uh, is everything in the film is then underlined by that central idea of her becoming a star. So her it, replacing him. Yeah. Star, so yeah. so it becomes sort of the, the way you, or the way I, anyway viewed everything in the film was with this background knowledge of the fact that her becoming a star is the the way to interpret everything that happens which is what makes it a really interesting I think portrait of fame and celebrity and all the rest of it um yeah so yeah yeah good good movie I totally recommend it to people absolutely would you Yep, for yep. sure.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think we're not going to be able to avoid it <laughs> for the no. next six months right up until the water. I was so happy because I saw it
1: last night at like 5 o'clock and the cinema was fill, full. Um, and I imagine, you know, many, many cinemas were full on a yeah. Saturday night first. Yeah, I mean, opening weekend. Like it's kind of – it's it shouldn't be that unusual but it is that unusual, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I rarely go to the movies on a Saturday night, so I don't really know. But, but when you do, you go to A Star Is Born. When I do, I go to A Star Is Born. Um, yeah, don't waste my moments.
0: Do you predict awards for this?
1: Yes. I mean, I am on the Lady Gaga Best Actress train, but I haven't seen any of the other performances that are likely no, to be nominated. So no, I really so, want to see Glenn Close in um, The Wife. I would like to see her too. So I can't really say... Um, and
0: Anders and I got quite excited watching Emma
3: Thompson in the trailer for The Children Act. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Always love Emma Thompson.
3: I'm worried about the movie, but I, I think <laughs> she will make it. though. But yeah. can you imagine that movie with Julia Roberts? I, this is my hypothetical. <laughs> I'm like, that would be a weird movie. No well, I enjoyed. was trying
0: to imagine a Star is Born directed by Clint Eastwood, who directed Jersey Boys, let's not forget. And Can you imagine what a different film that would be? Jersey Boys is a chore. Well, it's no Star is Born. So, mm. yeah. Um, but although he's got his own movie coming out in December, The Mule.
3: Yeah. Yes, which is based nice on true story.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: I'm sure that Bradley Cooper will get um, some get nominations him. for sure. Awards.
0: Yeah, I, I predict Sam Elliott will win. Nobody else essentially to touching for best supporting actor. Although Richard E. Grant in um, Oh yeah, 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 looks like a very exciting proposition in um, Why don't, Can You Can You Ever Forgive Me?
1: Yeah. So anyway, we'll um, see. We'll see. We'll see. But, we'll yeah. see. but Sh- it will Alba be and shallow. It will be on the radar. Shallow. For sure. No question. I mean, maybe it'll win. I mean, give it to her now. You know, Babs won an Oscar for Best Original Song in the 76. So at the very least, the Academy could give it a yeah, the Academ- Best Original Academy Song. The oh. Academy owe
0: this film still for Judy Garland losing out to Grace Kelly. <laughs> they
1: don't mention that.
3: Sorry. Uh, Sorry. And okay. look, if that all fails, at least the surely the Golden Globe for Best Musical yeah. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, yeah, I would put money on that. Which brings us to this month's Film Diary. Running from October 24 until November 21, the Jewish International Film Festival is showing 60 films from 23 countries, including opening night drama, The Interpreter, which stars Tony Erdmann's Peter Simonischek about a relationship, yeah, about a relationship between a man whose parents were killed in the Second World War and the ex-SS guard who may have shot them. The sprawling French biopic about Romain Garry, Promise at Dawn, that stars Charlotte Gainsbourg and Pierre Nini and the closing night film, The Unorthodox. The Jewish Film Festival runs at the Classic Cinema in Elstonwick, the Lido in Hawthorne, and Belgrave's Cameo Cinema. You can find out more at jiff.com.au. The British Film Festival screens at Palace Cinemas throughout Melbourne from October 25 until November 14. Highlights include Pierre Knightley's starring Turner's French novelist Sidney Gabrielle Collette, alongside Dominic West and Fiona Shaw, in Wash Westmanland's *Colette*. Mike Lee's new film, Peterloo, about a peaceful working-class uprising in 1819 Manchester. Deborah Hayward's coming-of-age psychodrama *Pincushion* and Chanya Buttons' *Vita* and *Virginia*, about the love affair between authors Vita Sackville-West and Virginia Woolf, starring Gemma Arterton and Melbourne's own Elizabeth Debicki. Google British Film Festival to find out more. Looking ahead, the Japanese Film Festival runs from November 22 until December 2nd at Acme. This year's festival takes in a retrospective of adaptations and new releases such as *Destiny*, *The Tale of Kamikura*, about a publishing assistant who moves into the town of Kamikura, in which fantastical creatures live alongside humans. The zombie comedy One Cut of the Dead, Yakiniku Dragon, about a Korean family's restaurant in Japan. Find out more at JapaneseFilmFestival.net. Over at the Astor, the classic French film festival's Jean Moreau special runs November 8-11. Highlights include Joseph Losey's Eva and Jules Jim and Elevated to the Gallows. The Astor Spooktacular takes place on October 27 with a screening of The Night You Came Home, 40 Years of Halloween. William Wyler's The Big Country screens on November 4 and There Will Be Blood on November 5. Eloise, is there anything happening over at Melbourne Uh
1: Still going with our Idola Pino season, which is um, exactly my jam. Very into it. Uh, still two weeks to go. It's a special four-week season, focusing on her as actor, screenwriter, director. And then following up with Edward Young, some great films to see him on the big screen will be really really exciting cool. um you know come for, for a four hour yeah You know,
0: oh my god i love that film yep
1: Incredible. so it's gonna be gonna be super nice
0: nice
3: don't come to see a star is born expecting to find a cinderella story or a glorification of motion pictures. instead you will be shocked by the price that must be paid in heartbreak and tears for every moment of triumph in hollywood What I'm here to find out is, do I get them, or do I get them? Unforgettable scenes of drama, intimate secrets in the lives of the great, bold revelations of how screen careers are ruined, come to light in Selznick International's Technicolor production, A Star Is Born. The rich human interest story of Hollywood is filled with happiness and despair. Joy and tragedy, a crazy quilt of madness, sanity, laughter and tears, the desperate struggle to reach the top and the battle to remain there.
0: And now to our top three films about fame, of course, which ties in with the behemoth we've just spent the last 40-odd minutes discussing. Hmm. Um, Anders, did you have any sort of prerequisites in mind when you were deciding which films would make your list?
3: Uh, not to talk about my fa- one of my favourite films of all time, Mulholland Drive, um, was on my <laughs> list. Prerequisites, not really. Just I'm really attracted to things that look at the dark side of fame. And I think... This is increasingly relevant. Okay, I can only talk personally from my own experience, but I feel like this is something that has really, you know, through um, the Harvey Weinstein stories and all of these, this sort of reporting that goes on, it's gone, the dark side of Hollywood, quote unquote, has gone for me from some sort of abstract concept that is artistically explored in certain films of TV to something that's very real and, that has changed my relationship. It's certainly... Be, I don't know, It once you sort of realise that, no, there's a real people... This isn't some abstract theme. It's a real thing grounded in real people in a real industry. It really drives that home. So, I was interested in films that look at that kind of stuff in a really serious kind of way, I guess. Cool, okay.
0: Elo, is there anything that you... Did you have any, like, rules or anything about making this My
1: list? rule was... Because I've actually found it quite hard to think of films because there are too many so my rule was that it couldn't just be a film about uh, a famous person or a film about Hollywood or whatever like that that was not enough that it had to be a film that actually kind of investigated the idea of fame mm, um, great. Okay. that was my that was cool. my kind of prerequisite cool.
0: nice one okay um, would you like to start Anders
3: I'd love to so my number three is the documentary Helmet Burger actor uh, from 2015 directed by Andreas Horvath. So, Helmut Berger is probably most well-known as the muse of Italian filmmaker Lucino Visconti. I'm fairly sure the two were actually lovers. Um, And for a long time, he was regarded as quote, the most beautiful man in the world, end quote, or at least a contender for that title alongside someone like Alain Delon. Are um, you're going to
1: say him? Mm, yes.
3: He's a beautiful man. He is a beautiful <laughs> man. Helmut Berger, still alive, he's now in his 70s. His glory days are well and truly behind him and he's living a sort of reclusive... Um, I guess volatile kind of life as this, um, very much as an eccentric in a in quite a cluttered uh, apartment, and he spends his days as this documentary shows us drinking, smoking, and surrounded by all of these artifacts of his you know height of his fame thirty which thirty odd years ago. Um, so enter the documentary maker Andreas Holvath, and he I find this film. So this is essentially a portrait of Berger, basically um, Andreas interviewing him and then also interviewing his mate. These are the two uh, main people in this um, documentary. And I find it a revelation. It's a revelation for many reasons, not least in its depiction of the faded European glamour set of the 60s and 70s. Um, there's this really amazing sequence where he follows Berger to a New Year's Eve party in Monaco, um, and it's one of the saddest scenes I witnessed at the cinema in 2015, um, because it's just so depressing this sequence so they're all in their 70s or 80s they're all dressed to the nines um in obviously very wealthy people and none of them are having fun in this um they're all just sort of sitting around staring at each other it's just it's it's almost awful it's like cringeworthy to what and these are the people who 20 or 30 years ago you know ruled the i guess you pan-European party scene, I guess. This is what they are now. They're reduced to this just, it's just awfully depressing. Um, and the sadness of that scene is only eclipsed by the final scene of this documentary, um, which, and I'll do a spoiler alert in case everyone wants to watch the film, but it ends with us watching Helmut Berger attempting to seduce the director in a sort of very desperate Ploy uh, by getting naked and masturbating for him and us the viewers. So, like I said, it's a revelation. This film, <laughs> wow. watching this guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's something else. So, I I don't know how you could find it. It's semi obscure, but do recommend if you ever get the chance to watch it. You'll reassess um, the twentieth century European filmmaking. <laughs> wow. Thanks
2: for
0: yeah. that, Anders. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Um, Certainly it goes along with your idea Of looking at the darker side of things. It is Mm. Yeah
3: Yeah It's interesting Interesting film Ellen
1: My number three And I would like to Thank Philippa Hawker For suggesting this film to me This morning We were chatting about What to look at You know With this top three And I Love, love, love this film But didn't think of it in my thinking about, you know, fame Because it doesn't immediately strike out as, as something that might go into this category But it very much does So my number three is the 1954 George Cukor film Uh-oh, Andy's what? worried Wait, what? It should happen to you Oh my God, let's <laughs> feel <turn>, Um, <laughs> So he was busy in 1954,
2: it seems Let's fall in love Oh, why, shouldn't why shouldn't we you fall in love? in love? Gladys Glover. Da, da, da. Yeah? Need anything to you? Many New Yorkers are speculating as to the answer to one of the most unimportant questions of the day. Namely, who or what is Gladys Glover?
1: Okay, so <laughs> it should happen to you, and then the trailer tagline is, and it will! Exclamation <laughs> mark. So this is a, a comedy film with a script written by Garson Kanan, who was written... And directed films that I think I've mentioned on this podcast before... ...like My Favourite Wife. He was married to Ruth Gordon. Mm, they okay. wrote a lot of comedies together. Yeah, he wrote the script and George Cukor directed... ...and it stars Judy Holliday and Jack Lemmon... ...in one of his first major roles. Oh, right. But she is just an everyday woman. I think she's working like as a receptionist or something in Manhattan. She lives um, near Columbus Circle and... I enjoy this film because it's quite rich in presenting Manhattan on screen. So there's some location cinematography, but also just this really great kind of um, evocation of the idea of living in like apartment buildings that are all kind of squashed together. There are shots of, you know, washing lines in between buildings kind of thing. But the reason why this film is a film about fame is because Judy Holiday plays this regular woman called Gladys Glover who just really wants to be famous And she doesn't know how or even care. She just loves the idea of being famous. Not even the idea of being famous, but she wants to see her name in lights, basically. And so one day she sees a billboard being taken down in Columbus Circle, being replaced with advertising that says, call this number to advertise here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And she does, and she ends up buying the billboard for a couple of months and all it says is Gladys Glover. (laughs) So she just gets them to write her name on this huge billboard in Columbus Circle and then, you know, she's kind of in love with it. And, of course, this is Judy Holliday, so it's her beautiful kind of innocent really comedic dry but sparkling character who just wants something and (laughs) um you know she kind of she does play that slightly um unintelligent woman type but of course she she's so much more than that um anyway There's a guy who wants to use the billboard instead And so he buys it back from her And she then gets six billboards around Manhattan That (laughs) she writes her name She just writes her name on it And then she becomes famous Because people are like Who is she?
3: Um, It sounds like a bloody anticipated uh, You know that Angeline woman in LA Who became famous for putting her name on a billboard? (laughs) <laughs> like in real life in real life yeah wow. um,
1: yeah so th- you know there's there's a bit where she watches this news report in, in a bar and the news reporter is saying um, who or what is Gladys Glover because no one knows <laughs> they've just seen this around and so she becomes famous and she gets hired by an advertising company and does all of these photo shoots and it's very funny and very endearing if you love Judy Holiday. Um, we'll and if you should out. watch it If you don't then what's wrong with you um, <laughs> But I really I just love it because it's It's actually a really perfect, happy Uplifting movie that kind of Does hint at some of the twisted Ideas that people get about fame but it's brilliant At masking that I think with the Glamour of, of a comedy cool. I, I mean I can't really say that it's Doing something more subversive Than it suggests but but perhaps it is Especially given that it was, you know, a Cukor film in 1954. Yeah,
0: that anticipated viral advertising.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that that's it.
0: Cool, great choice. Um, my number three is Robert Altman's 1975 film Nashville because <gasps> it kind of does what... It fills in the blanks, I think, for a lot of what A Star is Born is, because A Star is Born kind of re- has this reductionist approach to the industry where you have one person who can suddenly bring this whole you know, behemoth behind them to make you famous. Um, and whereas this actually just breaks down that behemoth into these lots and lots and lots of little bits. And so there's like 24 characters in this film, there's hundreds and hundreds of like minor characters, there's all these overlapping dialogue, there's so much overlapping dialogue. So, ostensibly, what it is is it talks about Nashville and the country and gospel music scene. And right from the very beginning, where you're kind of inside this really crowded recording studio as this Titan country music is making a song about how wonderful america is you then start moving on and then seeing these other characters these people who are swirling around them this folk trio that turn up this is all so much amazing music there's like a full over an hour of this film is just songs being performed on stage and then you get so many different versions all these different genres these different characters that come in in the background of all this sort of um this kind of hurly-burly there's a political candidate and a businessman who's putting on a rally which incorporates some of the artist's that becomes the climax of the film, even though the climax is probably too strong a word. It kind of just happens like everything else in this film just happens. But the way... The, it's kind of ingenious, not in the only in the way that Altman moved microphones around these busy scenes of, to, uh, to catch these different dialogues, um, but also the way that the music is used to connect people and these different relationships that people have and the way that they change. It's compulsive watching. I think it's incredible. And every time... I've watched it maybe nearly a dozen times, and every time there's always more to find. There's always the little extra layers and that sort of thing. So... Um, Oh, definitely, if you haven't already seen it, I would seek it out. And there was a really great Criterion version that came out, I think, in 2014. That's probably the best way.
1: Anders owns it, and I currently have it. Oh, good.
3: Yes. So, yeah, I I'm nodding vigorously. <laughs> <a> fantastic <laughs> film.
0: Yeah, and a really great examination of fame and the way that yes. the, the, the community yeah. builds the industry. Yeah, and
3: the relationship between entertainment and politics.
0: Yeah, that too. Yeah, In an no, yeah. obvious
3: way, but also in all sorts of other ways as well. Yeah, great film. Cool. And Jeff Goldblum as a magician.
0: <laughs> He's on a John Almas motorbike. A yeah, Nashville is about a lot of things and a lot of people. See all 24 of them and the outrageous things they do in Robert Altman's
2: Nashville. <laughs> It opens Nashville. For movie lovers. The damnedest thing you ever saw.
3: Um, My number two is Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy from 1982. It's a black comedy which stars Jerry Lewis who's a sort of iconic figure of American uh, entertainment, I guess, as a um, sort of late night talk show host in the David Letterman uh, vein. He's sort of presented as a very famous um, talk show host in New York City. Um, and he's stalked by a couple of crazed fans, including the main character Rob, played by Robert De Niro. And he's sort of rival for Jerry Lewis's uh, affections played by Sandra Bernhardt. And she's Amazing, this film, as is De Niro. And, and so the film sort of uh, spends a lot of time with De Niro's character. We've sort of discovered that he's a wannabe comedian himself. He's not particularly great at that, but he's very good at the hustle. And so the film shows him try again and again and again to get a spot on this late night show. And then he sort of succeeds, but in a sort of very dramatic fashion. It's a very unpleasant film to watch. It's quite stressful the way particularly... Uh, De Niro's character, his lack of self-awareness about how desperate and hopeless his plight is. And so there's just, like, I don't know, minutes and minutes and minutes of scenes where he's, you know, trying... He's trying, you know, he takes a girl out on a date and, like, she's clearly sees right through his bullshit and he's like, oh, you know, I've been talking to this guy and I'm, like, friends with this famous person. And just the desperation is... So palpable in De Niro's performance. So it's really worth watching for that. And also, I think, for Lewis, who's really... He's such an interesting... He's sort of exasperation with this guy, but it's just sort of a resigned exasperation in a way. Like the way Lewis's character responds to this crazed stalker is not necessarily the way that I would or I would expect a character to. And so that's quite interesting as well. So, yeah, it's really – it's on Netflix, I think. So it's worth uh, checking out.
1: All right. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and do another um, Scorsese-Genero film. Really? From 1977. And I'm kind of choosing this for its – Possible connection, at least in a theoretical perspective, to A Star is Born. Um, so I have chosen New York, New York.
2: It was 1945. The war was over, and the world was falling in love again. Give me a number. You got a pencil or no. something? Give me All right, I have a photographic memory. Just give me a number now and I'll remember. No. Give me a phone number. No. Yes. No. no. Yes. No. Yes. Liza Minnelli. Robert De Niro, New York, New York. I can take a hint. Can you also take a walk? Look, do you want me to leave? Yes.
1: I'll leave right now. Bye. You expect me to leave after
2: the way you talked to me just now?
1: It was a huge failure as well. Uh, maybe not a huge... Fa- it was a failure, basically. And it's essentially kind of can be seen as a star is born, or at least it's Liza's chance to do a star is born because... And I find it really interesting because Streisand did a star is born in 76 and this is 77, and this is, you know, Liza Minnelli, and thinking about how Judy Garland kind of helped Barbara Streisand become famous by having her on her show and everything, that, that, that whole connection is very interesting and, you know, something that I need to think a lot more about before I try and talk about it um, in public. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> mm, I can talk about it intimately with you guys. Me so talking. this film is... Great because I mean it kind of follows the same trajectory. It's like a, a woman who's a singer, um, small time singer, is meets um, a big kind of f- saxophone player. Maybe not big at this point, but basically you know a, a successful saxophone player played by De Niro, and they he's annoying and he keeps badgering her and he won't take no for an answer and whatnot. Um, and so, in that sense, he's kind of plays this very irritating character, <laughs> which he was so good at doing in so yes. many of these early <laughs> Scorsese films. But he, they kind of go to an audition together, and he interrupts her audition which is something that happens similarly in the 54 and 76 star is born right that he kind of um she has to save him essentially and so he interrupts it and gets into a fight or whatever and then they do this song together she sings and he plays saxophone and then they get hired together as a duo act um and then they fall in love and they get married and they have a son and then he leaves her because he can't it's not so much about the fame at this point i think but he just doesn't want to be a father and he's a bit of an asshole. So, but then you know he kind of falls down, and she gets very, very famous through a period. Uh, after a period of several years, um, she kind of becomes this really popular person. I think she um, kind of goes to Hollywood, maybe, but then you know, uh, or has success in Hollywood at least, and then goes back to New York and sings the big anthem, right? That New York, New York, and it's incredible, and it's really wonderful because there's kind of there are a lot of Bits in this where she looks so similar, is framed so similarly and also looks so similar to Judy Garland in the 54 Star is Born um, and that that is, you know, really just quite lovely um, to think about. But this film opens on VJ Day 1945 and so if you think about that connection to American, you know, that kind of it's already accessing this American mythology mm. um, and this idea of America kind of being there for itself and supporting itself and, and that like as a whole kind of construct, um, giving life to these relationships and to this fame. But then at the very end, it being kind of undercut by what has happened to these two people is, is really quite fascinating. Um, you know, and I think that we, when we look across Scorsese's career that he's doing that in a number of ways.
0: Um, my number two is probably a film I don't think anyone I've met outside of an Uber has ever seen. <laughs> and it's, but it's weird. So I'll start from the beginning. So um, I made a whole bunch of notes because I was really like, this film really needs to be seen by more people. Um, there are a lot of films about rags to riches fairy tale journeys of a person, usually a girl triumphing against adversity and poverty on talent alone, and this has become like one of the first cinematic cliches, like A Star Is Born. But there is something so compelling about this story that even if you see the mechanics working and you can predict the ending, it's still really, really emotionally engaging. Um, and so my number three is uh, sorry, my number two is a film that uses these sorts of this sort of template to tell a much more interesting and richer story than a lot. Of others. Um, this movie is called Secret Superstar. It's a Hindi movie that came out in late 2017 and it became the biggest Ind- Hindi language film outside of India. It's on Netflix. So, Secret Superstar tells the story of a 15 year old girl called Insia who writes songs and has these dreams of becoming a singer. But for, unfortunately for her, she lives in a conservative Muslim family in this Indian town of Baro- Baroda. And her best friend is her mother and pretty much the entire film gives you this illusion that it's going to be like a Star is Born kind of journey of obscurity to fame but it's actually much, much more about the mother-daughter relationship here and about overcoming um, sexism and religious uh, conservatism and its effect on women. Um, So her mother uh, steals some money um, from her abusive husband and to buy a laptop for her daughter. And so as soon as she does so, she starts making videos of herself and uploading them to YouTube, only she's wearing a niqab to hide her identity because she knows that if her father finds out, then this will become a big problem. So she becomes a viral sensation because her songs are beautiful and her voice is amazing. And it becomes it gets to the attention of this famous music producer played by the film's producer, Amir Khan, who's like the this titan oh. of the Hindi film industry. Yeah. At the beginning, he's like this epitome of toxic masculinity because he's in the news for just having had all these affairs and on his wife who has hired this amazing female lawyer, like the biggest one of the biggest lawyers in India, to sue him and divorce him. And so yeah, at the beginning, you think he's going to be like this horrible guy, but he very soon becomes this sort of very sweeter version of the Bradley Cooper-style um, archetypal enabler. So he thinks she's going to be the next big famous thing. But then... Um, it ends up becoming this much more interesting story about how fame is uh, – and the way technology is used today is like this sort of tool of liberation and education and how if you just have a laptop, it can t- totally transform the life of somebody like a 15-year-old girl who's living in an impoverished, con- religiously conservative village. Um, it's a Bollywood movie a bit, so it's quite long. There's a lot, quite The songs play out in full. It's very shiny and very, it moves a lot. There's really rich, saturated colours. Um, the characters are really well drawn. This It's very emotional. I was weeping pretty much all the way through it. I, I think most people do. Even some of the, the tougher Uber drivers I've talked to about this <laughs> have all been like, oh, my God, Super Superstar. Oh, wow, yeah, incredible. It's already become this kind of huge viral sensation in China where it's become the biggest Hindi film ever. There, and Amir Khan has now become this thing with, as the cinema sort of industry opens up. It's become like the, this sort of calling card, I suppose, of, of non-Chinese cinema There is because it was so successful. Anyway, it's called Secret Secret Superstar and I definitely recommend tracking awesome. it down.
3: Interesting. We can find it on Netflix. You can. Yeah, it's cool. It's just sitting there. Fantastic. Well, my number one is Clouds of Sils Maria, Olivia Assayez's 2014 film. I, I don't know. I just really love this film, you guys. <laughs> uh, so, Juliette Binoche essentially plays a variation of herself. Um, She's a middle-aged global European superstar. Um, She's a superstar actor who's holed up in the mountains with her PA, played by Kristen Stewart. Um, She's up there because she's just been cast in a new production of Malocha Snake, which is this sort of play in the film, is this uh, lesbian romance play that originally launched her to stardom. The thing is, the first time around she played... The younger lover in this film and this time around now she's the older woman so with this sort of conceit the film becomes a quite an intelligent examination of how the culture industries and and including not just i think um the in the production side but also the audiences the the intelligentsia, the audience of this film, how we treat not just women, but women who are aging. And at the center of that is this relationship between Stewart's character and Binoche's character. And it's a relationship that grows increasingly ambiguous as the film goes on. Are they two sides of the same coin? Do they exist independently of each other? Is this industry forcing them against each other in certain ways that... They can only barely understand. How do they resist um, that? How do they embrace it at certain points? It's sort of, it's very interesting how that all plays out in the film. Um, And so you have some really wonderful moments of bonding, I guess, between these two women, but also a bit more of an ambiguous relationship. So all of that is explored and it's not definitively answered. I just, it would be easy to write this film off, I think, sight unseen as just another Juliet Binoche starring European art house picture, but it's it's way more intelligent than that. And I the
1: name f- of my new band.
3: Yeah, oh <laughs> can I sign you for yeah. <laughs> that name alone? Yeah, sign me up. It's just much more than that. It's it's and I think that reflexivity about how it looks at, I mean, not just this woman, but also questions of art and industry and artistic truth. I guess it explores these sort of big picture ideas but in a really engaging and intelligent way. So that's why I love it so much. And I think Binoche is a fantastic actor and she really sells this. along with Krista Stewart, actually. She's great in it too. And I believe that a lot of it or some of it is sort of based on her own life story. So it is very autobiographical in that regard. Uh, but again, those questions of fiction and non-fiction, all that kind of stuff, um, it blurs all of that together. So I, it's a wonderful film. Do recommend.
2: Barbara, you were much younger then. Go to the devil. Barbara, honey, this is 1959. It's 25 years from Night in Paris and 26 years since you made Farewell Without Tears. That room across the hall is dark, it's damp, it's full of cobwebs step out of it step out of this kick you get your war paint done and i'll meet you over at Saul's office at three o'clock okay
1: okay danny <laughs> my um number one is actually an episode of the twilight zone
0: no way,
3: really? <laughs> <laughs> I will did not see this coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Called The 16mm Shrine, directed by Mitchell Leeson in 1959. So, this actually screened at the Cinematheque this week in our Ida Lupino season. Wow. Um, it is an episode starring Ida Lupino as an aging actress who lives, you know, in her uh, as a recluse in her mansion in Hollywood or in Beverly Hills, as, uh, you know, kind of watching. 16 millimeter prints on her projector of her old movies so you know it's it's very uh, connected to Sunset Boulevard mm-hmm. um, of course in in its kind of gothic occasional gothic setup um, and imagining on screen and the way that it kind of suggests that the house is like this kind of trap for her um, but the outside world is is also a trap and so that there's no you know there's no kind of way in which she can can succeed or find happiness. So her name is, uh, Ida Pino plays a woman named Barbara Jean Trenton, who was incredibly famous in the early 30s. And it kind of starts with her watching this film, I think, from 1932. And I love it because it's a really great imagining of a star in Hollywood. And without fully highlighting it, I mean, it's a Twilight Zone episode, so 25 minutes, you know, and it doesn't really go into things. The point of the Twilight Zone is that, that it just hints at, at larger messages. Um, Without going into them completely, is that it does suggest the discrepancy in the way that men and women are treated in the limelight, uh, and the way that men, you know, are essentially allowed to age and women are not, mm. um, because the man who was her favorite co-star, um, kind of an Errol Flynn type in the early '30s, he returns to visit her in in the house. Um, And he's this bespectacled, unremarkable looking guy played by Jerome Cowan who doesn't care anymore that his looks have faded and his fame has disappeared. He's just, uh, you know, working in a, I don't know, a boardroom or something. Um, And so she sees him and she thinks, how can you possibly be happy being a nobody now because she struggles so much with it? And so without explicitly saying, saying so, we see... I mean it doesn't judge her for kind of having these feelings And having these reactions Which is, it's really important Because there are other films that kind of will condemn a woman For feeling lost For desiring to return to the glory That her earlier looks gave her Um, But this, yeah, this doesn't do that It doesn't say that there's anything inherently conceited Or hysterical about a woman Um, It just hints that there's this hypocrisy in Hollywood Kind of an imbalance of the way that men and women are um, given roles and then viewed as they age. There's a bit where she goes, she gets offered a role and she goes into the studio um, and it turns out it's a role that she can play like the mother in a film and she doesn't want to. Like the word mother just sets her off and she says no. Um, anyway, it's just, really, it's just really great.
0: Cool. And that's 16mm Shrine? Yeah, right. yeah.
1: Um, and so it's on the, you know, the Twilight Zone box set. You can see it there. Cool. Um, but Ida Lupino is so great in it like she was such a talented woman but she's so perfect yeah
0: cool okay
1: hello
2: grandfather hello he can talk then can he of course he can talk he's a human being isn't he well if he's your grandfather who knows (laughs) and we're looking after him are we i look
0: after myself yeah that's what i'm afraid of he's got you worried then him he's a villain a real mixer and it cost you a fortune in breach of promise cases. Get on. No, straight up. My number 1 doesn't only explore fame in a way that became hugely influential, but it rewrote how we understand it and how cinema relates to it. And I think it's best expressed by Roger Ebert when he revisited this film in 1996, and he wrote, Goddard's jump cuts in Breathless turned up in every TV ad. Truffaut's freeze frame at the end of the 400 blows became a cliché. But Richard Lester's innovations in A Hard Day's Night have become familiar because the style, the subject and the stars are so suited to one another the movie hasn't become dated. And so I love the way that this film marries the subjects of the fame and the adulation of the public and the art from the opening second of the opening scene as the band are chased through Marylebone Station by a horde of fans including a young Phil Collins. A Hard Day's Night is one of the best films and certainly the most fun about fame as a prison, which is, of course, a big cliche, but it's never really referenced. Nobody's ever down about it. It's just kind of played for laughs. What makes this such a great film about fame is the energy that it has. This movie was released on Ringo Starr's 24th birthday and Richard Lester had just crossed 30. So there's this total youthful dynamism. It's very rare to see a film... Of this statue, but just be given over to a bunch of young younger people. To and I really think that the energy is captured beautifully. Um, the screenwriter Alan Owens wrote them a lot of wrote the band a lot of short one-liners because he assumed that like every other musician who'd been in an exploitation movie like this, they couldn't act. So a lot of re- material was written later once it reali- once they realized they did have real charm and naturalness on camera. And of course, some of the best dialogue comes from Beatles press conferences, from featuring jokes and witticisms that they'd already made. Richard Lester is now known as the grandfather of MTV because of this film. Because we're so used to seeing music play underneath documentary footage, or to see these cuts of the ba- between band members really quickly into the beat, or to see people jumping in the air and you never seeing them, them landing. These sorts of these sorts of scenes that we're now so used to seeing turn up on Rage or something like that. It kind of all began here, and so I think this is a really, really great film that's worth revisiting, particularly with the Criterion Collection re-release that came out last year.
2: Now you'll like these. You'll really dig them. That cab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seeing dead in them. The dead grotty, grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. Of course they're grotty, you wretched nit. That's why they were designed. But that's what you'll want. I won't. You can be replaced, chicky baby. I don't care. And that poses out too, Sonny Jim. The new thing is to care passionately and be right wing. Anyway, if you don't cooperate, you won't meet Susan. And who's this Susan when she's at home? Only Susan Campy, our resident teenager. You'll have to love
1: her. She's your symbol. Oh, you mean that posh bird who gets everything wrong?
0: So did anybody have any uh close call nearly but not quite?
1: I had just one and I just wanna throw it in there because I feel like it would be remiss of us to leave something like this out, and that is the music video slash movie for paparazzi by Lady Gaga. So Ooh. this is a like almost eight minute movie, I think, and it's set up like it's a real movie and it says, you know, introducing Lady Gaga, starring, you know, Alexander Skarsgård, directed by Jonas Ackerland but so you know he's the director but we can very much say that this is all part of Lady Gaga's own curation of her image so it kind of sets up before the song starts this perfect home green lawns manicured garden view of the ocean um sculptures chandeliers you know all of this stuff they're living in this mansion um Garg's and her beautiful boyfriend um there's but it's kind of messy so we see beneath this curated perfection like cash thrown all over like shit kind of broken in the house um there's no suggestion why but anyway there are the and the bills the money bills have gags on them and they say (laughs) the united states of lady gaga you know so it's very much curating this image of gaga as the center of of america um but then she falls off the um balcony because her boyfriend alexander skaza pushes her and she there's a sh- this incredible shot that's filled with incredible shots of her in like costumes just every five seconds a different costume um this great shot of her kind of splattered on the footpath footpath newspaper headlines say like lady no more gaga kind of thing because she's she's not dead it turns out she gets out of a limo in the next shot with a red diamond neck brace in a wheelchair kind of becomes this real stylized pop video of like influenced by the post-human body um and then one of the lines is we're plastic but we'll still have fun um then it's clear that she's you know still trapped with her boyfriend who she hates and so she kills him and then she admits to it she publicly admits to it and immediately the newspapers welcome her back and there's newspapers kind of you know on the in the frame, we love her again um, kind of thing. So, I mean, it's very, it's shorthand, but it's this great commentary on fame, right, and America, you know, the the kind of thing that you see people thrive, you know, that we will worship people who commit crimes um, Mm. just if they're glamorous at least. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, it's shorthand, but it's really great.
3: Good call. Awesome. Um, uh, Just a couple of brief mentions. Uh, Another Robert Altman film, The Player, which uh, is set in 1990s Hollywood and has has a who's who of that scene uh, as um, supporting actors and extras. A classic... These are all very obvious choices, by the way. uh, A classic of um, the... Star is born and eclipses other stars genre, which would be all about Eve. Yes, I
0: was going to (laughs) put that before actually.
3: Um, Which is a fab. I love that film so much, Um, and I'm sure we've talked about that before Um, on our All About Eve
0: episode. Yes, we did. We had a whole episode
3: devoted to it. We did. Yes, deservedly so. Well, link in the show notes to that, and then uh, I'd like to do a quick shout out. Although it's more about the media rather than fame, so the instruments through which um, fame is propagated, but that is the 1976 film Network.
0: Yeah, right, good one Yeah, I just had Almost Famous I thought it was a fairly obvious call Oh yes Uh, Love and Mercy was a 2016 movie Where Paul Dano and John Cusack Both play different uh, uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys At different ages And a lot of that's about the making of pet sounds And it's about the ramifications of what it's like to be A really unusual man (laughs) Who's become extremely famous And I heard that was surprisingly good It's amazing Sound design especially is remarkable in that film actually Um, Also Singing in the Rain needs to get a mention And I really like uh, That Thing You Do Tom Hanks' uh, 1996 movie about kids who kind of have a one-hit wonder. Um, I reckon that's worth a look.
1: One more shout out to Roxy Hart, 1942, starring Ginger Rogers, uh, directed by William A. Wellman, who did *A Star Is Born* in '37. So this is a like the Roxy Hart Chicago kind of story of the woman who, you know, wants fame. She's in prison and she gets fame because she um, plays the role of the wife, the very stylish um, kind of abused wife. Very well, and plays it all up. I love that film. Cool.
3: Um, and sorry, I'm just going <laughs> to do one more. David Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a delicious sort of portrait of Hollywood.
0: That's an excellent choice. Yes, we do
1: need to mention that.
3: Mia Wasikowska again. Mm. Mm. More of her
1: and Notting Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. <laughs>
0: And that brings us to the <gasps> end of episode 54. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Andrews, did you have... <laughs> <laughs> I've
3: done I've done
0: Okay.
3: Mulholland um, draft.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that weird Woody Allen movie with that one little bit where Roberto Benigni wakes up one morning and he realises he's famous but he doesn't know why and the rest of the world just is kind of obsessed with him. That's a great little bit from a terrible <laughs> film. Anyway, and that brings us to the end of episode 54. Thank you very much for listening. You can get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes. Please rate a review us.
1: Episode 54. As in 1954. As in 1954. Not a coincidence. We're all
3: Judy Garland,
0: Wow. Yeah. And Good Roger. Work, same. Yeah. Nice one, everybody. It's Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile. Anyway, <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cult Cap
1: Pod. You
0: can find me at Andy Ricky.
3: I'm, I'm sorry, sorry.
1: I'm at Eloise Lowry Ross.
3: <laughs> and I'm at Anders Furs. And great exciting news, we now have an Instagram account oh, yeah. that you can follow. Follows which we'll be Instagram. posting stuff from yeah. to.
0: That's Cultural Capital Podcast, unsurprisingly enough. Or one word? Yes. Great. Friend us there. <laughs>